This episode is brought to you by Quarter. Quarter is the new way of doing company research. Quarter's first mission is to enable access to conference calls, investor presentations, transcripts, and earnings reports as frictionless as possible, straight to your pocket. I started using Quarter and I've never looked back. You can think of Quarter as the Spotify for all investor conference calls that you can think of. You can type in the ticker of whatever company you want, say it's Etsy, and you can get a list of all of their recent earnings calls and inside the earnings calls, you can listen and click the PDF and it'll show you investor presentations or prepared remarks that you can read alongside listening. The best part is, is you can choose the speeds. You can have 1x, 1.2, 1.5, which is my favorite. And you can star companies, make them your favorites, and you'll get notifications for new conference calls and they'll be right at the top of your app. So there's five key points to remember about Quarter. First, it's 100% free. They include companies from 12 markets and plan to add more over the, over the coming year. They prioritize requested companies, which you can do in the app, and they have a lot more in store. So check them out on wherever app store you have. It's Q-U-A-R-T-R. That's Q-U-A-R-T-R. Before we dive into today's conversation, I want to talk to you about MIT Investment Management Company, also known as Matimco, the investment office of MIT. Each year, Matimco invests with a handful of new emerging managers who it believes can earn exceptional long-term returns in support of MIT's mission. In order to help the emerging manager community more broadly, they created EmergingManagers.org, a website for emerging manager stock pickers. For those looking to start a stock picking fund or those just looking to learn about how others have done it, I highly recommend this site. You'll find essays and interviews by successful emerging managers, service providers used by MIT's own fund managers, essays Matimco has written for emerging stock pickers, and more. Matimco also occasionally and opportunistically hires new members for their investment team. To view the job description, please visit matimco.org slash global dash investor. That's M-I-T-I-M-C-O dot O-R-G slash global dash investor. The Matimco team spends their time learning about great businesses and investments, working with exceptional investors around the world in order to support generations of MIT innovators. I'm also excited to announce our newest sponsor, Tegas. Tegas has the world's largest collection of instantly available interviews on all the public and private companies you care about. All you have to do is log in and type in a stock ticker or a keyword. For example, if you're interested in gaming stocks, you can type in RBLX for Roblox. Or type in the keyword Metaverse and instantly read hundreds of calls on the company and industry. Tegas actually makes primary research fun and effortless too. Instead of weeks and months, you can learn a new industry or company in hours and all from those that know it best. Now, I only sponsor products that I use every day, and Tegas is no exception. Since joining, I spend nearly all my time reading Tegas calls on existing companies and new ideas into my portfolio, and I know you will too. So if you're interested, head on over to tegas.co forward slash value hive for a free trial to see for yourself. Again, that's tegas.co forward slash value hive our FinTwit anonymous account series it's a you know just little acronym i made uh this week we've got bonsi chillups at pref shares he is pretty well known on twitter uh if you listen to the podcast there's a pretty good chance that you follow him already um he joined twitter in march of 2016 and uh he just produces great content uh asking good questions um, sending sending great tweets, and he was on the top of the list for people I wanted to get on this FinTwit Anonymous podcast series. So uh, we're going to discuss a bunch of things. We're going to discuss no factor fatigue days. 
um, think like an owner, why you don't want multiple expansion, questions, not answers, and future earnings power, as well as holding cash and various industries, including video games, telcos, home improvement, and private equity. Uh, but first, I think the most important question, Bonsi, is why the name Bonsi Chillups? Yeah, so, um, and we can actually touch on this a little bit uh, at some point, but uh, I really like the name, particularly because of the, um, so I was a fan of the early 2000s Pistons team, Chauncey Billups, clearly being, being the point guard. I apologize to anyone who's not a basketball fan, but basically the Pistons, early 2000s, were very successful basketball franchise, and the point guard was a guy named Chauncey Billups, who's a uh, currently a head coach. Um I believe, I believe he's still head coach, but um, it was a, a very successful point guard. They won a championship. Um, but yeah, and and I, and we can touch on this, but I, I think a lot of investing actually has to do with having good court vision um, and kind of being a good point guard. I think there's, there's a lot of analogies between being a good point guard and being a good investor. Um, and so it just kind of felt like a fit. Awesome. And you mentioned this, this court vision. Uh, what is, what is the difference you see between having court vision and say when you started investing in public and private in, in 2011 versus today and, and some of the maybe yeah. even advantages of, of what, what you've seen today versus in 2011? Yeah. Well, I'll say there was, um, you know, if you, uh, I, I, I think if you look back to like 2011, 2012 and something that was actually kind of interesting is, if you look at the, you know, the median S&P 500 stock in late 2012 was basically trading for something like 12 and a half times earnings. And if you look at, um, you know, if you look at that compared to today, first off, the market looked incredibly cheap, but it's also just fascinating that even the businesses that you could buy within the index, um, you know, you could buy Microsoft at eight times earnings, you could buy Apple at nine times earnings, you could buy Union Pacific at 11 times earnings, Google at 13, you know, Moody's at 13 times earnings. Um, and these were current earnings. These weren't like 2025. Yeah, yeah, no, these were, these were, I'm not, I'm not talking about like, oh, well, if you project out, I'm talking about at the time, this is what these businesses were trading for. Yep. And so it, it's, you know, it's fascinating that I think one thing that I would point out is that a lot of value investors these days, um, you know, quote unquote value investors will will bemoan the underperformance of value over the past decade. And actually, while I believe there is, you know, some some credence to that, you know, some reason to believe that since like 2017, you've seen this big, uh, basically the top quartile of S&P 500 with regards to valuation, uh, however you want to measure it. Um, enterprise value to EBIT or, or price to earnings is basically their multiples has just expanded and kind of left the rest of the market behind. Back in 2011, this was not the case. Like there was the, the difference between the most expensive quartile and the least expensive quartile, like that 75th versus 25th percentile. Uh, it was a pretty narrow range. I mean, I just listed to you a bunch of high quality companies, a lot of them in some of them in the, the upper kind of quartile uh, that were trading for very reasonable multiples of earnings. And, and additionally, you look back over this period, you saw, you know, Exxon was trading at nine times earnings. Uh, GE was trading at 11.7 times earnings, I think is what I looked back yesterday, kind of in 2013. And, and AT&T was trading at 14 times earnings. So 
it's kind of interesting. A lot of value investors today, quote unquote, value investors will bemoan this underperformance of value. But when I look at it and I just look back at what was available by then, like it wasn't that cheap, just underperformed. A lot of guys just picked the wrong stocks. Um, now, since 2017 on, like uh, there's an argument to be made. Cheap has just flat out underperformed. But so to bring this back to the idea of court vision. So we got this scenario in, in 2011. Um, and then we'll juxtapose it with a situation a day where there is a pretty large, I mean, you can look at like the JP Morgan quarterly guide to the markets. They do this dispersion basically b- between the most expensive and least expensive stocks. And you can see that dispersion is kind of at a, at a relative, I don't want to say all time high, but it's a relative high for sure um, over the past couple of, of decades. Um, and when you look at this, I basically look at these two different situations in 2011, a pretty narrow spread between cheap and expensive. And then today, a pretty drastic spread between cheap and expensive. If somewhat being like a point guard and needing to appreciate how the defense is guarding your team. So if we look at these high quality compounders or good businesses, fast growing businesses, look at them as like a very solid point guard or pardon me, a very solid shooting guard, kind of the guy you want to get the ball to. He's your score. He's your best player. In a lot of situations, if the defense is only guarding him with one guy, if they're only single teaming him, give him the ball and let him go to work. Um, why don't, don't try to get too cute with things. Don't try to all of a sudden, um, you know, be looking at funky special situations. There, there's to some extent, it's just get your best player, the ball and let him go to work. Uh, on the other hand, though, like t- today, there's a situation where, again, as we outlined, there's kind of a spread between the most expensive and least expensive stocks in the market. Um, and so the question becomes, OK, are they double teaming my best players? And if so, what what do I do? You know, on those on those old uh, Pistons teams, uh, there was Rip Hamilton was the, the shooting guard, who's a Hall of Fame shooting guard. But then they also had Ben Wallace, who's an incredible defender, but was an offensive liability. But the question is, does the defense ever leave Ben Wallace open enough that you can just pass it him directly under the basket and he can grab it, turn around and dunk it? Are, are there opportunities um, to get quick, easy baskets? Um, and I'm not saying anything comes easy investing, but basically what I'm just saying is as an investor, uh, you have to scan the court similar to a point guard going consistently saying like, I'm just buying the best businesses at some point, that's not going to serve you well. Saying I'm always just going to buy the cheapest businesses. At some point, clearly as we've seen over the past couple of years, that's not going to serve you well. Mm-hmm. So I think one of the most important things and why I really like the, you know, have adopted the moniker Bonsi Chillips and agree with the basketball slash point guard analogy for investing, or at least in the style that I, I choose to do so, is there needs to be flexibility. Um, to get married to one style um, over any extended period of time um, just has the opportunity to to result in a lot of underperformance and a lot of pain. I like that analogy mainly because, you know, I enjoy basketball, really playoff basketball, honestly. I don't care about the regular season. Regular season's hard to follow, man. (laughs) But it's funny because I went to Syracuse uh, for a couple of years and I got to watch Jim Bayheim. And, you know, for those that aren't basketball fans, again, he's known for the two, three zone. And it's one of those things where 
teams don't really play it. It's usually man to man. And so when you're faced with this two, three zone, you can sometimes get forced into just beating your head against the wall, trying to figure out how to, how to beat the zone. And it's fascinating to think that the so-called value investors I will put in air quotes over the last call it, you know, three or five years, what they've effectively done. And just so I'm understanding you is what they've effectively done is they've given it to say, you know, Kevin Durant. Um, and instead of him being guarded just with one person, he's immediately swarmed with two to three guys. And you're just asking him to keep taking shots, even if they're not going up. Yeah. Well, I'd even say like today, like for example, you know, a, like when I say the best, the best players are being well guarded today uh, to some extent is um, I love Costco. I'm a big fan of the business model. Um, I've studied it. It is a fantastic business for me buying Costco at something like 45 times free cash flow. I don't know exactly what it is today, but just recently 45 times touched even 50 times free cash flow. That is forcing the ball to your best player when he's being double teamed. That is simultaneously um, back in 2011, trying to get the ball to GE at 12 times earnings to an extent was trying to get Ben Wallace a cheap basket when he had a guy on him. Um, it was like, what? So I think an appreciation for, I'm not trying to make a, make a, a super strong argument for, um, you know, timing factors. Um, but I am making an argument for an appreciation. I think a lot of time the quote unquote timing of factors can be done by um, just some common sense. Uh, when you have companies that are trading at 20 times, uh, 20 times revenue, pardon me, even if they're fantastic businesses, they're being very well guarded, quote unquote, the multiples very high. And there's a lot of things that can go wrong. And even if things go right, you may not be compensated for it. Um, also, there's times where the cheapest company, you now the quote unquote lowest multiple company, it's not low multiple, you know, it's multiple is not low enough relative to what else is out there. When, when you're looking at a, you know, waste management when it's trading at 14 times earnings and GE's trading at 12 times earnings in, in 2012, don't try to force the ball to the worst player. Just like let your let the better company go to work. Um, and so that that's kind of a, a guiding uh, just guiding principle or philosophy of mine is, is trying to just understand at any one point in time um, who are your offensive players, what are the different kind of strategies, and then how's the defense, how's the market quote unquote defending those, what what multiples are the market willing to pay for these different quality businesses. You know, you brought up Costco and I completely agree, uh, but it continues to hit new highs. It's it, I it's into all new all time highs today closed up over four hundred seventy seven dollars a share is 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 part of that frustrating in the sense of you've got this thesis and, you know, at some point you're keep because if we're if we're going to keep the analogy going like mm -hmm. at Costco, for example, at 45 times free cash flow, It's the equivalent of these compounders and these, these so-called value investors throwing the ball to a double or triple team Kevin Durant, yet still somehow Durant seems to make the shot or make the shot and yeah. get fouled. Yeah, exactly. Um, no, that's actually a pretty good analogy. Yeah, I, th I think the thing that has helped me um, 
you know, and, and again, if someone has a, you know, legitimate um, bull fundamental, you know, bull case from here on Costco, I'm not, I'm not calling them crazy. I'm not calling them stupid either. I'm just saying, I, I don't see it when I forecast out the earnings um, for, you know, five, 10 years and then see what I have to pay for it. Um, you know, maybe you can make sense of it when you look at its stability relative to, to bonds and look at it as a bond proxy. Um, but just on a, on absolute, like what type of return can this generate for me? What type of cash can I get, um, for, for buying this company at this level? Like what can my, you know, cash on cash yield or earnings yield be in 2030? Like it, it's just not for me enough. Um, maybe somebody, maybe I'm too low on my, my out year earnings estimates, but yeah, you know, it's, it, it can be somewhat frustrating, but I would say this as well as I, I touch on, we, we can, we can go a little bit into the, you know, you touched on this about um, quote unquote, I sent you something, no factor fatigue. Yeah. Um, and one, one thing that I, I'd like to touch on there. And so I, I am, you know, as I've talked about scanning the court, that doesn't always mean being exclusive to investing in one style at any one point in time. Hmm. So for example, over the past, you know, three years, um, you know, the, the firm I'm at, we, we've bought United Rentals at five times earnings. Um, I've bought Adobe at 30 plus times earnings and I bought Amazon at, uh, you know, right as it was beginning to show gap net income. Um, so, I, you know, it's not necessarily a situation where I'm hoping one factor outperform, where I'm coming into the office every day, I'm saying, oh my gosh, if, if value doesn't outperform growth today, I'm going to have a bad day or like my stomach's going to be upset. That sounds like a terrible life to live, by the way. Yeah, yeah. But either, either to be, to, to come in every day, just praying that rates go up and that value outperforms or coming in every day and just fingers crossed that, that, you know, Peru's portfolio just keeps moving higher and all the SaaS names <laughs> continue to fly. Like either one, like I, I, it would be awful. Like I do think, I do think there's benefits to having a mix and to basically being able to say, um, you know, two investors that I appreciate who've been able to do this very well over time are actually um, uh, Tepper's done this very well uh, and Bill Miller's done this very well. Of They're incredibly opportunistic investors. Um, they aren't married to a style. You know, you look at Bill Miller who can be pounding the table on you know, Amazon years ago while simultaneously owning banks in size, yep. like uh, just the f mental flexibility um, and the ability to view investments through multiple lenses, um, you know, is something that I think is, is incredibly powerful. Uh, you have to be able to wear different hats, I think, at times. And there's, there's some times where I, I wear a hat that is, okay, what's, uh, how fast is this growing? Um, and is this, it's okay to have the mental model of say how, how, just how quickly is this company going? And if it continues at the rate, look at five, 10 years out, look at what the TAM is, look where the market opportunity is simultaneously and turn around and look at a business that's much lower growth. Um, but I feel incredibly confident about its terminal value, hmm. you know, businesses like Lockheed Martin or Northrop Grumman, um, they are not high-flying, fast-growing businesses. Um, however, they are, uh, you know, a, a friend said to me once, they're basically uh, annuities guaranteed by the U.S. government 
um, that have a right to buy back shares. Um, so I, I just, and then also I can look at probabilistically super cheap things where it's, it's 75% chance this thing's fine and it's worth way more and 25% chance this thing's bankrupt. Um, and it's worth a lot less. Um, but if you can come up with some, you know, expected value, uh, estimate that you think is very favorable, then it might be worth a position. And so I, I just don't have any one particular style that I feel that needs to be applied at all times. And because of that, and the ability to kind of look across the court, so to speak, I never really walk in and look at my portfolio and think, man, I'm, I'm super concerned here. Mm-hmm. Uh, if rates go up or rates go down, or if this style, you know, if energy under outperforms or if SAS name, SAS multiples come in, um, just think it's all, all a part of building kind of a, a you know, well-constructed portfolio. One mental model that I've used, and I want to get your feedback on it, because I don't know if it's, I guess, I guess what I'm trying to say here is like, I try to keep things very simple, but I also don't want to oversimplify something and like reduce the importance of other things just for the sake of saying like, oh, I like to keep things simple. But a mental model that I'm trying to think about more when it comes to companies, and I've kind of stolen this you know, obvious, you know, Joe, cats out of the bag, stolen this from Cliff Sosin, which if anybody's listened to my podcast, I pretty much steal everything from that guy. Um, but when I, when I look at companies and I, and I think about a business, I'm not trying to think about like, what's this thing trading at? What's its valuation multiple? What's its mm-hmm. PE? What's its EV to EBIT? And I try to take the largest view possible, the you know, 30,000 foot jet view and saying, look, where's this business today? How big is this business today? And given its market opportunity and given potential competitive advantages and moats, like how big could this thing get realistically if you play this out over five to 10 years and for reasons X, Y, Z, it's able to defend its moat. And then I just kind of start with that massively broad viewpoint and picture of this business and its potential future. And by doing that, it almost redirects the minutia and the study of the details into the things that matter by taking (laughs) as big of an approach as possible. Yeah, I'd actually, two things I'd touch on with that. One, I actually tweeted something recently that I feel like um, is appropriate to this is one, as I would say, um, when you have a, uh, when you're first learning financial modeling, and I'll have a lot of people reach out to me and ask financial modeling and, and learning how to model, uh, I think that originally it's actually really valuable to learn how to build very complex financial models. Um, I do um, to build LBOs and MA and ACTIL models and all these things. I actually think it's, it's incredibly helpful. Um, however, over time, as you get better, at modeling and better at thinking about a business, you should be looking every incremental model you make, say, how can I make this model more simple? How can I take away things that don't matter as much? Mm-hmm. You used to build out this huge, you know, interest expense bill driven by their entire debt stack and how you see it evolving over a 10-year period. Just model interest expense is percent of net debt and model net debt at a constant leverage ratio. Like 
it, it's not, not going to change the output um, or it's not going to help you ask better questions about the company um, as you're modeling. And again, and that's something I'd even highlight. Modeling is not to get to some number that's of oh, the company's worth. Modeling is a process through which we try to figure out what earnings could be years out from now, uh, but also to help us ask better questions about the business today. I like that. Um, that's at the end of the day, it should just give you a deeper appreciation for what are the drivers of this business. What do I need to be right about? Um, what, where's the value come from? And so I, I absolutely agree. Like you want to be continuing to just take away those layers of complexity and get to, okay, what is driving this idea? What's driving um, the economic model of this business? Um, the real true at the end of the day, KPIs. Um, and then the other thing I just had is you kind of touched on this, but it's crazy. Sometimes I'll hear people talking themselves into making investments in sometimes in public markets. I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa back up a second. If so, if I brought this to you as a friend, as a private investment, just a deal, I wanted you to invest in it with me and said, hey, I got an idea. Let's invest in this and brought you a PowerPoint deck on this company. You would say that company's dog crap. I don't want anything to do with it. like, no. But all of a sudden, because it's public markets and you read two Ben Graham books, like this is your best idea. Um, it's it's there should be uh, a level of basically comfort that you have with the business in the same way that you would being an owner of the business privately. That that the idea comes, you say yes, I intuitively buy this. I like this business. I think it's going to continue to grow for a long period of time. Um, or I think that, you know, there's going to be, you know, margin potential, um, or I think it's just flat out too cheap. Heck, I'd buy this business for, you know, twice that. Uh, I could probably sell it to somebody else for, for twice what they're asking for. Um, think about it like that. Think about it like it's a private business. Just because they, it, it, the stock trades doesn't mean all of a sudden that you have to start looking at all these, you know, ratios as your end all be all of investment guidance. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I mean, I strongly agree. I think people way overcomplicate, um, you know, the, the first kind of initial steps of like, am I interested in this business? Like some here's the thing. Some businesses are worth owning and some are not for the most part. Like, of course, everything at a price. But like a lot of my investment philosophy is just some businesses are good businesses and worth owning in over a long period of time, earn returns on capital well in excess of their cost of capital and others do not. And over time, you just want to own those businesses that generate an economic profit. Um, and so that's, I, I think you hit hit it perfectly, um, that, that looking at that and just kind of as Cliff's laid out, looking at those, the big kind of couple questions instead of trying to get too detailed. I like the, I like the idea of presenting this company as a, as a friend, bringing you a, a pitch deck for, for, for a private venture, because it touches on something that's, that's a passion of mine. And um, you mentioned there are some businesses that'll be good that you should own. Like there are some of those out there and there are some that you shouldn't. And there's also this, this mindset. And I don't know if it's more of like a social status or kind of like a cocktail hour mindset where you should invest in businesses that excite you. And mm -hmm. The beauty of that definition is that the excite part is completely, you know, objective um, to you, or I'm sorry, subjective to whatever you think is exciting. Um, so for me, like what might be exciting is a really cool 
online marketplace that connects a bunch of highly fragmented uh, you know, cohort of sellers to this buyer community that really um, is looking for something like that. Um, or it might be a cool technology that helps businesses, you know, like make, make more money just, um, but if you, if you can't get excited about it, you're not going to have the staying power to learn as much as you need to, to hold for the long term. And then this kind of goes into what you say, like, think about an owner, like, I love waste management as a stock and as a business. I don't think it'll ever get down to a price where I would buy it, but it's also one of those businesses where like waste management doesn't excite me the way something that I think is like closer to my circle of competence and like circle of passion would, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Yeah. I think it's, it's interesting. Like, you know, I can, People, I do think there's a sense of it of what do you check, kind of have a gut check and like, do I intuitively believe what I'm putting on this paper right now, whether it's a model. I just talk about, uh, I'm talking about models a lot because I think a lot of people, you know, I, I'll get asked by people, younger college students that are about DCF modeling and all this stuff a lot. And sometimes I just want to bring it way back up and say like, it's important, but it's, that's not important at all. Um and really, at the end of the day, you know, actually, uh, Thunderdome had a tweet recently that was a good, good tweet. And it was a, echoing this idea that if you have a position and it's a small position and you don't feel like making it larger, particularly especially after like a drawdown or if it's, you know, kind of consolidated over a couple of months and hasn't gone anywhere um, or years, uh, if you don't feel like making it larger, that's kind of a gut check. Like even if your spreadsheet is telling you it's a fantastic IRR from there, uh, you may not intuitively believe it. Um, and so I think there are situations like that where you need to be honest with yourself of, um, am I interested in this business? And like, also at the end of the day, do I fundamentally like do I believe this thesis in my bones or did I just get there because I put some numbers in a spreadsheet and I put out a good number? Um, and I think over time you want to constantly be whittling away the investment ideas that you don't have a lot of conviction in. Um, if you're going to be wrong, do you want to be wrong because you were just actually wrong about how the world works and something you had conviction in turned out to be not true? Or do you want it to be because you actually didn't like the idea, but your spreadsheet said 17% IRR? So you put money in it. No, if, if you're going to go down, go down with the things that you want to swing on. Like, don't don't sit here, you know, because your spreadsheet told you to do something. Um, and that's one thing that for, uh, you know, as I'll give advice to younger guys in investing and college students, especially, I'll really try to drive home is just be some of the best, uh, some of the worst investment ideas or some of the worst investments I've seen have arisen out of really good looking financial models and spreadsheets it just um there is a bit of intuition um that's needed can you give us a real life example from your portfolio whether it's public or a private investment where um it 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 both shows your excitement for the business and your kind of understanding of 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 this business and also your transformation from model heavy to a model simplistic style is there is there one investment that kind of encapsulates both of those things if not that's fine because i know that that's a pretty specific question yeah so um yeah so here, here's actually a decent example um 
So I'm a big uh, follow the home improvement industry. Um, I have followed Lowe's and Home Depot for, for a good while. And there's a situation that happened a couple of years back where, uh, so Lowe's had had a CEO um, for the better half of, of the last decade who had done a, a pretty good job, but basically their margins had fallen somewhat behind Home Depot's. Um, and over time, some activists got involved, Pershing, some others got involved and basically wanted Lowe's to, to change, um, change up the management team a little bit. So they ended up doing that and they ended up hiring a guy named Marvin Ellison, um, who was an ex-Home Depot executive. And now the reason that Home Depot had kind of outperformed Lowe's on a fundamental basis over the past decade was really because the DIY or the do-it-yourself, you know, me or you going into Home Depot uh, or Lowe's, that business had, had done well um, for both both companies, but Lowe's had really fallen behind with regards to the pro or contractor business. Home Depot had done an excellent job basically building out uh, the infrastructure to allow pro contractors to come into Home Depot, get what they need quickly and get out. I mean, and you can also imagine as they started to layer on sales, uh, that was incredibly um, additive to margin. If you just open up basically another quasi storefront over on the other side of the store, which some people may have seen if they've gone to Home Depot, there's basically two checkout lines now, one's for DIYers, one's for pro. When you basically open up the back of the store and start having pros run in and out, uh, just doing more sales all in the same box, that's incredibly accretive to sales per square foot and thus a creative to margin. So really, you were able to see in 2018, Marvin Ellison took over, started doing a pretty good job. Um, there were some early indications that looks like things were going well. And then they had this pretty large, um, I call it a gross margin mishap. There was one quarter where basically they, they said gross margin, they had a pretty material miss. And they said that their pricing systems um, basically weren't uh, properly passed through some pricing changes um, from inventory to, to the product being sold. And so Which it doesn't sound good, in, by the way. That doesn't sound good. No, it's not, it's not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then a lot of it was because they had a legacy kind of technological infrastructure. Um, and so there's just some questions of, all right, is this new team mis mishandling kind of this uh this new management team in San Luis transition um, is this legacy technology infrastructure. Like, is there just too much tech debt here? Uh, what's going on? We don't really understand what's going on, but um, basically around that same time, um, Ellison and his team um, had put out a target that they wanted to get to 12% EBIT margins. And they were currently like 9% EBIT margins. Mm -hmm. Um and we go from nine to 12, like that's, that's pretty additive. Um, and so just taking a step back, looking at the high level, forgetting about just doing the tweak in the Excel model and know what, how much are they going to do in the garden segment? How much are they going to do in the paint segment? Just taking a step back, you look at the situation and say, okay, Lowe's has sold off to about 14 times earnings post this gross margin mishap. Um, historically it's traded for, you know, 16, 17, 18 times earnings and it's grown revenue mid single digits. 
on top of that, they have the guy, they have this guy, Marvin Ellison. I, I can't remember if I mentioned this, but Marvin Ellison was actually responsible for building out the pro business at Home Depot. So they hired the guy who had built out the pro business at Home Depot and our workshop, the main delta between Lowe's and Home Depot margin is the pro business. So just taking a step back, you're sitting here saying they've grown sales pretty well over the past decade. They now have a new CEO who is special. The, the business that they really need to accelerate just did this uh, previously at Home Depot. And he's saying that he thinks they can get to 12% EBIT margins. And a lot of that is going to come from um, some pretty simple stuff that they weren't doing earlier. They call it, we're calling it retail fundamentals. Um, I won't go into that too deeply, but some pretty basic stuff. If you just did like any level of work, you just see like, man, the stores were being mismanaged. And then also they're going to add on, they're going to start up this pro business. So basically you just, forgetting the model, you just make a bet. We think they can grow, you know, I think they can grow sales mid single digits like they have been historically. They'll probably get a little bit of boost out of that from this pro business getting better over time um, as they begin to do more and more uh, pro sales. And then, and then on top of all that, they have this margin opportunity. So we could see faster, we could see potentially faster sales growth than we have historically. Um, margins expand dramatically and we're able to buy it at 14 times earnings. And so it didn't, you didn't really need to do some deep, uh, and this is a high quality business that there was no, there was no question of like, is the, you know, is, is the business rolling over or is there going to be, you know, some big, you know, negative housing cycle? Like there weren't these questions at this time. So basically we were able to look at and say, even if we're wrong, like we're buying a business that's been pretty good historically cheap. It's cheap right now. Um, versus what it's traded at historically. And, and we think they're going to generate a lot of cash over the next couple of years, even if they can't get some margin back. Um, but they were able to, and I mean, the stock went from 93 to 230, um, to 227 today, um, without even having the multiple expand that much. A lot of that's just been earnings growth. And so that's a situation where, you know, being able to take a step back and not get too cute with the financial model and, oh, well, what if they do miss gross margin and it continues over the next couple of years? And you were just able to say, this is, this has been a, they've had a pretty consistent gross margin profile for 20 plus years now. We bet they can probably get back to that. We think management has properly diagnosed the situation and can get to 12% even margin. And this guy is the guy who just built out the pro business at Home Depot. Like we think he can probably do it here. Um, and if right, we're if right, we're going to make a lot, and if not, we're not going to lose that much money. Um, and the thesis is kind of just as simple as that. So that's a good example of of kind of being able to take that step back and uh, not having to get too like in the weeds. Um, right. Yeah, and generate an idea. I don't want to make this a business breakdown episode on Lowe's, but I do have a question and maybe a you know pretty pretty dumb question, but yeah, yeah, no worries. The uh, and this is just because I haven't spent really any any time studying both of these businesses. I, I've gone into both, right? I am probably yeah, one of the yeah. worst, worst DIY people uh, on the planet. I'm getting better, though. I'm getting better. My future father-in-law gave me a Ryobi tool set. Um, so I'm starting to drill holes in places. Nice. But uh, what what's the main 
difference between a business like Lowe's and Home Depot. They seem very interchangeable. And is there any sort of brand loyalty between one or the other? I could see it on the pro side, right? Where if, you know, you know, your rep at Home Depot, like, you know, your guy, he hooks you up, but on the DIY, you know, section, is it more of just who's got the closest store to where I live or is, is, is there something deeper there? Yeah, no, it actually tends to be who has the closest store to where I live. Um, But within that, it is a natural duopoly. And then it also is worth touching on basically their state within the broader industry, the home improvement market, like what actual market share they have. So even though both are massive, both do not have uh, even greater than a 50% share of the home improvement category when you add them both together. There's still this very long tail of, um, you know, Ace Hardware and other similar, uh, you know, providers out there, some mom and pops, um, some suppliers who uh, do a pretty serious amount of volume. So a lot of times people will look at it and say like, well, are they, are they competing with each other? And it's like, no, it's kind of the, the industry I'd frame more as the big boys, Home Depot and Lowe's versus uh, the long tail of, right. um, uh, of other smaller mom and pops. Yeah. Cause one of the things that I would, that I would assume when you're making that kind of multiple comp from Lowe's, you're saying, look, Lowe's is 11 times or whatever, 11 times earnings. And you know, Home Depot is, whatever x x higher mm-hmm. um there 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 was that initial thought that popped into my head was well what if home depot is just a better business and then maybe home depot just deserves to trade at a higher multiple than lows mm-hmm. and then how great of a how great of a multiple comp is that then on a go forward basis but it sounds like they're pretty homogenous business yeah well home, home depot is probably slightly uh has been historically slightly better business mm-hmm. um margins are higher uh, sales per square foot are higher and uh, the multiple has tended to be higher. Now, here's the thing is, again, it's all the margin is, is, you know, a couple months ago or a couple, last year, the multiple uh, spread between Lowe's and Home Depot grew to like an all-time high. Um, historically, they traded pretty tightly, uh, you know, similar price to earnings ratio was each other right around 18 to 20 times over the past handful of years and that kind of blew out lows being much lower multiple uh home De- depot being higher you know maybe there were some explanations for that home depot skews a little bit more towards the pro market since they've been doing okay. this longer Lowe's skews a little bit more towards the diy market which people felt got a big influx of capital due to all the the um you know spending programs from last year so people have been a little bit more cautious about about the diy market but um, you know, at the time, I felt that multiple had, although points taken on Depot and Lowe's and some differences in the business uh, makeup, I felt that the multiple had, had um, the spread between the two had, had gotten too wide last year, you know, for a bit. But no, that's a, that's a good point. Home Depot is actually probably, people would say, a slightly better business. Um, but I don't think this is a situation where it's, you know, this is not a, oh, there's a clear, clear market leader. And then there's a super laggard bad number yeah. two that people are always trying to invest in and it never works. Yep. Um, these both, both have been absolute monsters over the past 20 years. I mean, I, I joke around. If you would have invested in Home Depot at the very top in 2008 or 2007, 
if you'd invested at the, if you did a top ticket, you've ate extra money since then. That's pretty um, nutty. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this, this was a housing crisis. And if you invested in uh, the leading home improvement retailer in the United States, you've had extra money since then. That's another thing that I touch on is just like, sometimes you mention these, but look, I invest in, I've invested in Adobe and Autodesk. I invest in video game companies. Like I'm not opposed, Amazon, I'm not opposed to investing in rapid. I've invested in a decent number of SaaS businesses, opposed at all to investing in rapidly growing businesses. However, sometimes people underappreciate the returns that can be generated in businesses that are not growing 15 to 20% year over year. Yeah. When you have good, solid, a good, solid secular grower with mid single digit organic growth that has very high incremental margins and does mm-hmm. not require a lot of capital so that all, especially if they run some type of uh, levered buyback model. I mean, if you've got or levered return model, if you commit to running with two or three turns of leverage, then all of a sudden you've got five points of revenue growth. And then that five points of revenue growth turns in, you get a little incremental margin, turns into, you know, seven, eight points of EBITDA growth. Yep. And then all of a sudden you're able to, you know, that incremental growth, you're able to borrow two or three times against and take all that cash and return it to shareholders because you have a very capital light model like Home Depot does, like Sherwin-Williams does, like Moody's does, um, O'Reilly, AutoZone, uh, uh, Lockheed, Northrop. If you look at all these businesses, they require basically no capital to run for the most part. So every you know incremental profit dollar that they generate, they not only can return immediately to share- shareholders, they can borrow more on their increased pro- against their increased profitability and return that to shareholders as well. So that's that's just something that you know sometimes people look at Lowe's, Home Depot, or you know, Sherwin, or um, Moody's, or or these companies. It's like, well, how how quickly is it actually growing? You know, what's the revenue? Okay, five percent, five percent top line growth. How can I get? How how am I ever going to get more than like a five to ten percent return if it's not growing faster than that? I'll um, just say. Uh, to do a little bit more homework on some of the you know top performing stocks over the past you know 40 50 years a lot of them a lot of them have been very you know fast growers but some of them have just been incredibly consistent uh growers with high incremental margins and that don't require a lot of capital the first time i met jason greenwald uh who's i think at greenwald capital on twitter mm-hmm. we we were we were chatting cuz he's 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 a real estate guy he does yeah. auctions foreclosures and the dc area oh, yeah. actually right around right around me but we were we were chatting and he said brandon if i just invested in home depot when i started buying homes and doing real estate he's like i would have made so much money yeah. with such less stress <laughs> it's, it's insane. It, is, it is funny it is it, it's crazy when you look at these businesses and Again, it's not like there's been rapid multiple expansion or anything. These there has been some just uh, along with the market, but um, there's just there's some businesses that are just worth owning. They're incredibly efficient money making machines, and they grow. They're strong secular growers with high certainty of terminal value is important, and you're going to get higher incremental margins along the way, and they're going to return. The capital shareholders. Um, that's actually something you know we'll, we'll touch on. I'd love to touch on. Um, you know, people will do these DCF models, and we'll do DCF models, and sometimes we'll even do it with companies that are uh, 
that are melting ice cubes. And I'll say, well, look, I've done this DCF. The DCF says it's going to work way more than what it's trading for. Um, and I think the fatal flaw with the DCF model is there's this assumption. The assumption is the cash flows that are generated are properly allocated. Like that's super key. Like I'm gonna say that again. The key, the fatal flaw with a DCF model is the assumption that the cash flows that are generated are properly allocated. And that is a lot of times not the case, particularly in melting ice cubes. A lot of times you get a melting ice cube, the EBIT, the free cash flow starts to decline. And all of a sudden the management of the company wants to reinvent themselves and they want to get into some other line of business. They're throwing good money after bad. So that's one of the reasons why I don't think public markets ever give melting ice cubes much of valuation and why for the most part I stay away from them is because here's the thing is if the company produces a lot of cash, but I never see any of it back, management just uses it to go pursue some you know parallel or even completely unrelated business line and then destroys capital there then run that out. The DCF value on that is zero. Yep. So, you know, uh, really the only times I'm ever interested in investing in melting ice cubes based on some type of DCF value is one, uh, can I control the cash flows? Let me get the cash flows. I I'll, I'll give back shareholders. Um, or two, is there a prudent capital allocator controlling the cash flows? I think this is, you know, this is a situation like Q-rate retail or um, Sirius XM, um, any of those businesses, you know, that Liberty controls is, yeah, they might be melting ice cubes, but you have an incredibly prudent uh, shareholder and, and capital allocators who are going to give you your money back along the way. Um, but yeah, that's that's one thing that I kind of, you know, jokingly, capital allocation is, is incredibly important. Um, and, you know, I, I, sometimes I'll see people do DCF models and I'm just like, I always do an earnings or a free cash flow per share model because it forces me to think about how is management going to allocate capital? What are they going to do with this? Okay, so they're, they're generating capital. Are they going to reinvest it into the business? Are they going to pay down debt? Are they going to buy back stock? Are they going to go buy someone else? Or are they going to pay a dividend? That's all they can do. So which one of those five things are they going to do? Um, and instead of just doing a flat DCF and modeling out force yourself to get down to what do they do? What, what, what earnings grow? What does free cash flow do on a per share basis? Cause that forces you to go through that exercise of, okay, so they get this free cash flow. What do they do with it? How are they allocating it? Um, which, which is, uh, is really important. If you look at a lot of those businesses I just touched on that are not super fast growers, but have been incredible returns over long periods of time, all of them have impeccable, uh, capital allocation. We've gone almost an hour, actually. I think we have gone an hour this podcast. And oh, wow. I haven't brought up the question of your origin story and how much, obviously, you can share in detail. You know, that's that that's at your discretion. Uh, but walk us through how you got started in stocks and, um, you know, what, what led you to your role today. And then after that, I'd, I'd love to dive into uh, how you think about, you know, your own investment allocation, both time and money into public ideas, like public stock ideas versus private market ideas and kind of how you think about that. So walk us through what got you into stocks in the first place. Yeah. Um, so a little bit of my origin story. I grew up, uh, my father was actually a minister um, and my mother was a social worker originally. And then she now is a, uh, 
is a financial coordinator for uh, orthodontist office. So pretty natural transition from social work into orthodontics. Um, but yeah, so that was my family growing up. Awesome family. Um, when I was probably middle school, early high school, I just started becoming interested in business and reached out, you know, kind of asked my dad, Hey, what, what should I do here? Cause we, we don't really, we didn't really have anyone in my family who was quote unquote a business person. I didn't really have anyone to, to ask. And so he just told me, uh, kind of gave me the names of a couple of people in our community. Um, and I just started reaching out to them, whether writing a letter, calling them. And so I did this and a lot of people did not get back to me. Uh, it was my first lesson in cold calling. Um, but some people did. Um, and a couple people said that they'd start meeting with me. And that kind of started this informal business education. I had a, a regional bank manager who, who met with me a couple of times and explained to me the base, kind of the basics of banking. I had a retired uh, college professor who was an economist at a large school who just started going out to lunch with me and kind of teaching me some of the basics of economics. Um, and then I actually got in touch with a gentleman who had a vacation home actually in my area where I grew up. And uh, my dad just said, I think he does something in stocks. Like I think he's a stock picker or something. And so uh, I reached out, he said he'd meet with me um, and he met with me and uh Turns out that he uh, he worked uh, for a fund. He was a partner at a hedge fund that was actually uh, backed by um, Tiger uh, Management. Um, oh, wow. It's kind of funny. I kind of hesitate as I said that because there's been some joking on Twitter recently. Like, oh, you're a Tiger Cub. And I was like, no, 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 I'm not saying I'm not saying people are saying that me. Other people have been like teasing other people. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I say that with a bit of trepidation, but. Uh, so the guy that I met with was not a quote unquote tiger cub, but his partner at this fund was one of Julian Robertson's old analysts. Um, and so there was, and then tiger had, had seated them. Um, and so that was, was, you know, the fund. And so I, but basically I was in mid, mid high school and just started meeting with those guys. Um, and they really spent a lot of time pouring into me um, and teaching me a lot and helping me learn about investing. Um, I'd call them frequently when I had questions and stuff. And so that was that was a big um, that was a big part of my investing education. And then I went to school. I went to a large state school. I ended up interning at that fund. Um, and um, you know, it's it's funny. I was you know, tweeted out and said, Hey, does anyone have any questions right be before this? And, uh, Southern value, a guy who I know responded and he said, what, what, what business has taught you the most? Um, and it actually made me immediately think of that summer, uh, that I interned with them. And I ended up working with them for about a year. I did like some consulting stuff as like, I kept doing projects while I was back at school, um, and, and giving them pitches and stuff. But, my my main responsibility like one summer while I was there was uh, to basically um, to just find like one good idea. Um, and I was looking around, talking to other investors, and I was kind of working with one of the analysts there as well and came across this company called Pico Holdings. Pico owned a bunch of water rights in the southwestern United States. And 
owned a bunch of water rights and had bought them in the 90s. Uh, that kind of been when they'd acquired these water rights. And so long story short, the water rights were on the balance sheet of PICO for way less than they were actually worth. These are like Southwestern United States water rights that were bought in the 90s. So there was a disconnect between market value and we had done, we did, did some work with these guys and found out that, you know, the, the market value was um, probably like four to six X what the actual, you know, balance sheet value was or the quoted value. So all of a sudden, whoa, Hey, we, we, you got a thesis. Like this is, this is <laughs> yeah. really attractive. And so, you know, I, we work with this analyst and we put this pitch together and super excited and get take position and yada, yada, yada. And then um, uh, the, guy who was the the pm basically just asked us after a presentation he was like um what about this management team I'm like what do you mean by that management team like this is an asset play what are you talking about like this is an asset play they have an asset and he's like yeah but what have you done with the management team like well i mean here's their names here's their histories whatever but he's like hey, have you really dug into these guys and he basically said they've been here for five plus years no values being created um, like I'll, I, I'm going to put a little bit of this on, but I'm not putting on in size, uh, cause we know, nothing, you know, you guys know nothing about this management team. Um, and, uh, basically I just watched the stock go on to underperform for like five years. Like it was an absolute crap show. Uh, it was, uh, a mess and that PM was a hundred percent right. Uh, management was incredibly entrenched. I think it was like three or four years later that finally the CEO stepped down and stock was up like 10% on the day or something. Like, I mean, it was, it was just awful. And I mean, that was, that was, uh, so I'm kind of going from my origin story into like one of my first investing lessons, which was, uh, back to my earlier point, capital allocation matters. Um, and what management chooses to do with their assets and with their cash flow is incredibly important. Um, and at the end of the day, the most important thing is the business. Like you just have to have a good horse. If you don't have a good horse, like, you know, the old Buffett saying about when a bad, you know, company and a good management team meet the business leaves with its, you know, reputation intact, uh, that, that quote is true. But at the end of the day, I kind of look at things as it's almost like a horse race. So there's three factors that need to be taken into consideration. You have, you have the horse, which is really important. You need a fast horse. You need a good business. Yep. Um, you have the track which tend to be the conditions, the industry, uh, the regulatory environment, um, the market environment, et cetera. Uh, but then you have the jockey, you have the management team. And you know the fastest horse in the world, but if the jockey's running backwards, good luck, man. So that's kind of, I think people having a deep appreciation for the jockey is something that was instilled in me pretty early uh, based on one of my, one of my original kind of first I feel like I had a really good pitch and watching it uh, watching it just go nowhere for for five years and and get obliterated um taught taught me a lot about uh the importance of catalog did it ta- uh did it teach you a lot about never investing in asset plays ever again <laughs> yeah um <laughs> since then well I, yeah here's the thing is that it you know we I think we touched on this I sent this to you a little bit earlier yeah at this point I'm pretty committed to having the majority of my portfolio invested in companies that are growing earnings. Um, I just think here's the thing, because if there's a business that I, somebody, somebody 
tweeted this out recently. I've I've expressed a similar feeling before, and and I I feel it strongly. Is even if you buy a business that's forty percent undervalued, but is not growing value, or you could buy it that's ten percent, or let's call it twenty percent undervalued, and is growing value at ten percent a year. If the stock prices don't go anywhere for three years, um, fast forward, you now have a business that's still, or and, and the business value changes as I as I said, the one at a forty percent discount, you know, is not growing value, but the one at a twenty percent discount is growing value at ten percent a year. Right. You forward, you now have a business uh, that's at a forty percent discount to whatever intrinsic value, still not growing, and you've got another business that. And that I can't do math, but um, top of my head, but was like at a 30% discount, 35% discount, growing 10% to interest by growing 10% a year. Yep. So yeah, it, it definitely, it's not to say asset plays can never work again, got to have court vision, but I do think having the majority of your portfolio invested in companies that you feel strongly are growing intrinsic value per share, earnings per share, free cash flow per share, however you want to break it, growing value on a per share basis. Um, at the end of the day, that's, you know, that that's the sweet spot. And then it goes back to thinking about valuation and kind of getting sucked into this mindset of being married to a spreadsheet, where if you're deciding between, do I invest in something that's 30% undervalued or 40% undervalued? Like, I think, I think you're missing the entire point, which is to find businesses where, you're not asking those types of questions. Like find businesses where you're like, look, if 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 these things work and if I can make a probabilistic bet with a reasonable range of expectations within that cone of my of my expectations, if that cone is narrow enough and I feel confident in kind of the ranges both on a low, high, and medium basis, you know, how many times am I like how many times my money will I will I will I make? Like, I think, I yeah. think that's the question that investors should ask and, you know, apologies for kind of getting on a soapbox, but it's just like, Oh, do it. Like you've got, you know, we're, we all have the same amount of time and we all only get kind of one shot at doing this thing. And I just don't understand why you would spend your time trying to find something for the reason of, well, it's 40% discounted to what I think it's worth. Like find something where you think, if, if things go well reasonably and you have a built-in margin of safety based on what price you think you're paying today versus how big you can think it, you know, how big you think it mm-hmm. can get, like go for those and don't spend any time on these things that just subtract from, from those types of ideas. Yeah. That's, that's also, you know, I've kind of even said, you know, like a discount intrinsic value, discount intrinsic value. That's just not how, even how frame an investment, investment yep. opportunity. I'm, yep. I'm much more, you know, pro- try to project out earnings somewhere between five and 10 years or free cash flow on a per share basis, figure out an appropriate multiple to pay for that business and try to understand what type of IRR that would generate from the current price. And so for me, you know, the buildup to IRR is what's your revenue growth? What's your margin expansion or contraction? So then what does, you know, EBIT grow at? Uh, then below that, what are they doing with the capital structure? So what's happening to interest expense and thus, you know, net income? And then what are they doing with buybacks or dividends? So how should net income grow? And then should I be getting any dividend yield off of that? Um, 
you know, and then what, what's the multiple do? So end of the day, you're really revenue, uh, you know, margin, capital allocation, multiple, that, that all there is going to drive your, your return build. So over any five to 10 year period, say, all right, they're going to grow revenue at this revenue at five, even at seven, they're going to be able to get a little bit more from good capital allocation with regard to net income per share growth. So they're going to grow net income per share at I don't know, 12. And then I think the multiple uh, stay flat. It's a 12% IRR from here um, over the next five to seven years. Um, that's how I thought it. Um, and so for me, I'm, I kind of try to tend to unwrite to 15% IRRs. Like it's, um, that's kind of a, like a bottom hurdle for me that, that I like to get over. Um, I, I hope to be able to, you know, compound at mid teens over the course of my life. That's a goal. My main goal in my life, but is a goal of my life um, to be able to do that. So, yeah, I, I completely agree. When just to say, oh, something's forty percent discount to intrinsic value, um, it leaves a lot more to be desired with regards to a, a appreciation for where where your returns are going to come from. Yeah, and it's and it's not to say that you know that that type of mentality isn't you know won't won't work or anything. Obviously, you have to you have to navigate and you have to kind of point your compass towards what your end goal is going to be. Right. So if your end goal yeah. is, you know, Dennis Hong likes to say, you know, he's trying to put up hall of fame returns. Right. So, you know, a, an investor like Dennis Hong, isn't going to be worried about a stock that's 40% discounted to what he thinks it's worth. He's, 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 he's trying to hit, you know, hall of fame returns, right. Whatever, whatever yeah. that number you think in your head, that is, he's trying to do that. Um, and that other frame works, right. And you, you brought that up where, if you're an investor and you're kind of looking for a bond proxy, you're looking for something safe, or if you're an RIA shop and you've got a lot of clients that just want something safe, like you can play that game. But for mm -hmm. the majority of my listeners and the majority of people uh, playing in the market, like if you're going to play in the market, like I, I just, I just think you need to go for the mindset of I'm only going to focus on companies where I don't have to think about like, Oh, is it 40%? Is it 50%? Like, is the multiple going to be 12 times or 13 times like over the next five years? It's like, I don't know. I'm just getting, yeah. I'm just, I'm just, I just got to hop off the soapbox. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, com I completely agree. I, I do think that, um, you know, the, the growth and value being attached to the hip um, and really at the end of the day, like you would look at these things, like you would look at them like a butt to a PowerPoint and said, or a pitch and said, I want you to invest with us with me. And one of the first things he said, like, do you expect it to grow in 10 years? And he was like, no, but hear me out. You'd be like, no, but hear me out. I'm not interested. <laughs> um, so that's just something that's pretty simple. If you're looking at buying a private company, most of the time, if you're like, this thing's not growing, it, it, I'm, I'm not incredibly interested. Even private would be better because if it was private, you'd say, okay, well, hey, can I control the cash flows? Right. Well, yeah, you can yeah, it's, yeah it's a whole flows. different story at that point. You okay. pitch me a business is like, is it growing? No, it's shrinking. Uh, well, do I, I control the money? No, a management team does. Uh, how they done historically? I mentioned the business is shrinking. Uh, <laughs> so they're not a good management team. Do you think they're uh, really prudent and respect shareholders and going to return all the capital they generate to shareholders? Uh, no, they actually just some new AI 5G project that they're working on that they're deploying all the capital. It's like, uh, miss me with that, man. Like, uh, not, not interested. <laughs> Way earlier in the podcast, you mentioned a couple investors. Um, Bill Miller was one of them. And who was Seth the other Lewis, investor yeah. you mentioned? 
Tepper. Tepper, right. I think if you and and this was guys again that can no no factor fatigue they can they can move seamlessly mm-hmm. with fluidity between quote unquote value and and quote unquote you know like more growthy even venture type stuff. Um, yeah, I would put Dan Loeb up there with those two yes. guys. Yeah, he's and done great. What he's done over the last it seems like you know even couple years transitioning from the standard traditional value to really turning into a technology investor and a really great technology investor. Um, You know, obviously time will tell, you know, some of these bets are still early, but for the most part, it seems like he's made that transition just as well as, as Tepper and just as, and, Mm -hmm. and, and with, with the fluidity of someone like Bill Miller. Yeah, I, I, I agree. Um, I think one of the key commonalities between everyone that you just touched on is like they they've remained intellectually curious and I actually think that's easy to do when young I think when you're when you're you know 20 25 whole worlds ahead of you uh it's pretty easy to be intellectually curious um you know there's some there's some research social science research which you know I don't I don't give too much weight to because it's social science research but uh, that tends to indicate around like the age of 40 or so people's preferences become mostly set and they aren't really interested in learning new things. If you think about someone who's 55 years old and doesn't understand how like a USB stick works or something like how a heart, you know, or how a like uh, a remote hard drive or how an HDMI uh, plugin works, like it's not that they're too dumb to get it. They just have kind of established like, I know what I know yep. and I'm done figure out all this new stuff it's also one of the reasons why people tend to like the music from when they were 18 years old to 22 years old people like things they grew up with and over time they stop changing one of the things that i think is really important for investors is especially as you start aging is is fighting back against the creep of uh the intellectual curious curiosity and the spark dying and just being okay with what you know. I think that's what's made Buffett so great is that he's he's 85 years old. You know, at 85, he was still continuing to be intellectually curious. Um, you know, is in his in his 80s, he found Apple. Like that's that's um, you know, people make him too much credit for that at sometimes. But like I think it's I think it's worth some. Like he he's stayed intellectually curious. Um, and I think a lot of that just comes down to having no sacred cows and no areas where you're unwilling to ever, um, you know, to ever disagree with the orthodoxy that you've learned for me right now, for example, I'm, I am somewhat skeptical of some areas of DeFi, decentralized finance and crypto. I think there are a decent number of charlatans in the space. I don't think that like, I also do think it's incredibly interesting um, and it's worth paying attention to. And although I'm, you know, someone who uh, is, is probably more on the bearish side than some. Um, I also own $2,000 worth of axes on Axie Infinity. Why? Because like, I need to know if I'm wrong. Like I, I have to try, I have to like challenge my priors. Like I need to go play this game and see like, okay, where could I be wrong? All right, so like, let me buy money. Let me buy some Ethereum and let me transfer it to this wallet. Let me transfer it to this wallet. Let me see how easy it is. Let me go play Axie Infinity. Let me- So uh, how is it? Um, it's okay. Um, it's, it's, it's not a great game. Um, but it's very interesting just as a project from the idea that like, 
you buy in and then you have this, you know, quote unquote asset that doesn't depreciate. Like if I go and buy the new Call of Duty, you know, Vanguard that's coming pay 60, 70 bucks and immediately like my money will be gone. Like the argument that you could buy something, play a game, create some value in like the asset that your purchase price may actually hold flat um, or appreciate. Like, I, I do think that's very interesting. Like uh, as I sat there playing, I was like, look, this, it was, here's the other thing is they just raised a ton of money from um, one of the venture firms. I think it was, I think it was on Justin Horowitz, but uh, yeah, I mean, uh, so who knows where they could take the game in the coming years. But as I was playing, I was like, this is interesting. The idea that you can play a video game and basically create an economy around it um, and using blockchain technology and NFTs to actually have like some type of permanent value created within this ecosystem. Why? Because people like spending their time here and they elect to spend their time here. Um, that's fascinating. I'm still like, I'm still a bit skeptical, but like that for me is something that like, I've got to keep learning. I've got to keep growing. I can't just sit here and say like, Oh, crypto, like there's a lot of scams out there. Bitcoin's not worth anything. Like you can't hold it. Like I, I just, I want to continue to be intellectually curious my entire life. Um, I'm a big U.S. cable bull. I'm a big telecommunication, like telecommunications, I'm, call. I'm a big cable Dude, bull. It's 830. You're going to drown me to sleep talking oh, about my. cable. Dude, I mean, I'm sorry, man. <laughs> we'll, we'll stop. I'm just saying I'm a big cable in a Masa cap on Twitter. Like yeah. I'll go back and forth with him. I'll DM him. Like I love him when he, when he will push back on ideas that i like um you i want to see how his go gang up on him and stuff like that uh yeah we'll, we'll probably have to do it. hey don't throw me in willis's camp i'm not an altice bull all right don't put <laughs> don't put that evil on me ricky bobby uh the, the majors the majors only um but no i i just don't have a, a view on altice um yeah but uh but yeah so yeah just pe people challenging your priors i think is important you got to seek those people out and, and continue to be intellectually curious yeah, Axie, Axie Infinity is is fascinating. But what's what's more fascinating to me, and I I did a podcast with David Kay, and um, it was arguably one of the most enlightening podcasts I've done since starting this entire thing. Just like from pure just listening and learning about the space, and a lot of it's because I'm passionate about it. I'm passionate about the video game space. I'm passionate about the online world space. Um, passionate about social status and kind of how that interacts both online and offline. So a lot of passions amalgamated together there. But if anyone is skeptical about the idea of online worlds, online economies, and, and, and people paying for things specifically, um, David brought up this game, and I forget the name of it, because I, th I think he was one of the co-founders. But basically, and I don't know if it predated Second Life, um, mm -hmm. or not, but this game allowed you, it was, it was purely text-based, right? So you would, you would play the game and it was text and, 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 and you'd read it. So, you know, instead of you controlling a map, you know, controlling a, the person like in Pokemon going through the forest, you would read like, Hey, you're going through yeah, the forest, yeah. blah, blah, blah. Um, so, and sorry, you know, if you, if you kind of know all this, but, um, so what was the most intriguing aspect of that is people would buy things in this game that were purely text but the text would say hey you own this you know making up an example you own this platinum sword that's one of five 
mm-hmm. and you paid real money for this. And it's all it is, is text. Like you're owning text. And the light bulb just went off at that point. Like, oh my gosh, if people were willing to buy a sentence and that was it, just buy a sentence, then there's no doubt that people can spend millions upon millions of dollars buying, whether it's cool little JPEGs or buying, you know, skins in, 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 in games and stuff like that. Um, you know, not to take aside from the fact that there's probably tons of money laundering going on, obviously, yeah. but just the idea of people buying things like that, it's been happening for a long time and the technology sucked back then and yeah. it's, and it's, and it's better now. And I think buying preferences will continue to kind of morph that way. Yeah, I, I completely agree. It's a way of people being able to show um, exactly as you just touched on a show status in an area. Like, here's the thing is it doesn't make quote unquote rational sense that people will spend $10,000 on a pair of shoes um, or, you know, a ton of money on an incredibly nice like shirt is not necessarily nicer than a shirt. You know, a thousand dollar shirt isn't necessarily nicer than a shirt that costs, you know, Two hundred dollars, um, definitely not by five x, um, you know, or, or, or incredibly rare pair of Jordans aren't gonna make you run faster than any other shoes. Why, why do people buy them then? It's because the world that they're in, this world, the physical world, they want to have status in, and they want to display their status, and so they're willing to spend that amount of money, converting that currency into social capital that that financial capital and a social capital hopefully if it works yeah um and so the idea that people wouldn't do that online as well to figure out if that's the world that they're going to choose to live in if if you choose in if you choose to live in any individual online world the idea that you then wouldn't seek status in that world is is absurd so yeah i'm i'm actually i am very look i'm i'm you know, I don't know if we have time to go deep into like my, my views on the video game developers, but like I'm incredibly bullish, uh, the video game developers, particularly, you know, the major AAA publishing houses in the US, just um, you look at how much time people are committing, how engaged people are uh, with the product, how much time people are spending inside of these, these digital worlds. And then you look at how much money they're making off of them. Uh, and the crux of these is just like, this is driving a whole lot more engagement and attention than it is money right now and over time those will converge yeah i mean you look at a company like uh take two entertainment that got crushed because i think they had some uh i want to i mean i don't want to put words in their mouth wasn't like some sexist uh that was uh that was activision blizzard yeah okay yeah those are i mean the three big u.s publishers that are publicly traded are activision blizzard electronic arts and take two so yes activision blizzard the blizzard segment in particular just recently had an issue with looks like was just pretty toxic work workplace culture over the past 10 years. And they had a squawk out recently. So active, you know, Activision Blizzard, that's a $62 billion company. You, 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 you may or may not have done any work on it. So I'm not asking you to give me a hard answer, but again, it kind of goes back to trying to take the biggest step back possible and kind of look at it (laughs) from 30,000 feet at, at 62 billion, like, how like what are the ranges of of expectations and kind of probabilities you have to get comfortable with in order to see this business doubling or tripling over the next like five to ten years going from 60 billion to 120 180 billion that i mean that just seems like a 
a, a, a huge undertaking for a company like them. Yeah, so let's uh, let's talk about some embedded call options that lie in the video game space. Some Perfect. things that can happen that can unlock a lot of value and kind of, as I said, bring, you know, there's a lot more engagement currently happening in the video game space than there is um, monetization um, for the most part. So we'll just speak, we'll, we'll speak broadly on a couple of, of high level topics. So one that I would touch on is right now, it costs approximately um, $500 if you want to buy a gaming console. Um, so if you want to play a game, for the most part, you need to buy either a very nice computer or a gaming console. Most people play play via a console. Um, so uh, this is excluding mobile games for a second, just forgetting talking about mobile. Right. So you've got these, these games, um, and... Uh, people need to buy a $500 console to play them. How many people do you know who are not gamers who are going to go buy a $500 console to attempt to play a game? Zero. Not many. Um, so the install base of consoles is like 150 million, 200 million, somewhere in there. So basically that's kind of your TAM is those are the people with consoles. Over time though, as the advent of cloud gaming arrives, all of a sudden we get to this point where you no longer need a $500 mini computer sitting at your house so that you can play the game. You get to a point where someone who wants to trial it. And now of course, people who are gamers do have a console right now. So I'm not saying the whole world's just going to immediately say, Oh, we're playing these games. But if someone wants to trial it and just play it, they, they aren't going to go out by a $500 console right now. So you get to this point where cloud gaming basically drastically decreases the cost of into gaming you can try it out for $15 $20 and just see if you're interested so all of a sudden your TAM goes from you know 150 million to 200 million people with a console to everyone with a high-speed broadband internet connection who's willing to pay $15 once to try so you can see yep. massive TAM expansion to uh this is still interesting all these guys pay take rates so Activision take two I mean, they're still paying 30% take rates to the Microsoft store and to Sony PlayStation store and to, uh, and to Apple. Um, and I mean, there, there's just increased evidence that those are coming down. Microsoft talked earlier this year, actually outside of the Xbox store, just in the Microsoft store for apps, they lowered the take, their take rate from like 30 to 12. Um, I believe it was 12. I mean, if you just go ahead and do, if you do the math on, basically an incremental 30 a 30 take rate going to a 15 take rate or a 10 take rate and you're talking about an immediate you know 15 increase in revenue for the game developers and this is all in this is all at 100 incremental margin um this flows through an incredibly high margin so you've got potentially massive tam expansion you've got potentially massive take rate compression um, you have the Chinese market, which is still untapped. And here's the thing is if anyone's going to succeed in China, you have to have a relationship with Tencent or NetEase or another one of the large publishers so you can co-publish with them. If anyone's going to be able to navigate the legal, you know, hoops that it takes to jump through to doing that, it's going to be the large publishers. It's not going to be some independent who says, hey, Tencent, can you work with me? It's going to be the right. AAA publishers who are able to right. establish that relationship. So you got the Chinese market as well, and you have a rapidly growing mobile market that all these guys have somewhat been laggards in. 
uh, Activision Blizzard has acquired King and actually is doing pretty well there. Call of Duty Mobile is doing really well. Um, they're going to announce Diablo Immortal later this year, but you have this massive mobile call option um, that's growing rapidly. And then the last thing I'll touch on is um, I'm not sure. Have you seen, did you heard of like Google Stadia or like the Luna project that Amazon's doing? Yeah, I've heard of it. Haven't dug, haven't dug deep into it yet. Yeah. So basically, again, this goes back to cloud gaming. So Google tried like two, three years ago to put out this product called Stadia and I bought it. And basically it was their first cloud gaming. Like you don't need a device. Here's just a controller and basically a Google uh, uh, sort of Chrome stick, I think, um, that you can plug into your TV, like the, the operating system for your TV. Right. And you can play video games. And they signed up some pretty big games like Destiny, which is a big game. They, ha they had them partner. They partnered with them. Um, and the pitch was, hey, you can play games without a console. Uh, it didn't work great. There was some lag. There was too much lag. Uh, multiplayer experiences were just bad. But Google's still kind of continuing that project. Uh, so you've got Google Stadia, which that would have competed directly with Microsoft and would have competed directly with Sony. Uh, PlayStation, Xbox, you have Netflix, which is talking about getting into gaming. And then you also have um, uh, Amazon, which is talked about, I believe it's Project Luna, where they're going to try to be able to create a cloud streaming device. So all of a sudden you look down the road and you're about to have all these distributors coming into the market. You're about to have Amazon, Netflix, Google, and then the legacy incumbents, your, your Microsoft and your Sony. And one thing that can tell us is, or can show us is, as you saw with Netflix and HBO and all the networks, CBS, ABC, NBC, and the cable channels, um, ESPN, et cetera, yep. when distribution starts to be attacked, when a legacy distribution model starts to be attacked and there starts to be competition for different distribution models, content becomes king. When all of a sudden there's here, and we've seen this, all of a sudden when HBO and Netflix and Hulu and then still the legacy networks are all trying to attract viewers, what do they do? They start writing big ass checks for yep. content for Game of Thrones, for I want the rights to Foundation, you know, or I want the rights to Dune, or I want the rights to this TV show or that TV show or this actor. I will pay this actor a ton of money. I will pay Chappelle $30 million to come on and do this comedy special. Yep. All of a sudden, content becomes king when you get into these situations where distribution is being disintermediated and there's a distribution competition. All the distributors say, if I have the best content, I can attract customers. So, you know, the last thing that I'll, I'll leave with on this the video game poll case is, as you start to see over the next five to 10 years, distribution competition, you know, different distribution mechanisms besides just digital downloads over Xbox and PlayStation and GameStop going to get mm -hmm. it physical. Uh, people are going to try to attract customers through content. And I think we've seen bidding wars for Friends and Seinfeld. And, and to think that it can't happen for Grand Theft Auto um, and Call of Duty, um, I think it's short-sighted. Awesome. Well, that was that was tremendous. That was a blitz on video games. That just yeah. There you go. Like sorry, the sorry. Perfect, sorry. The perfect ending. I was sitting there like, man, this is incredible. I mean, that that could be a whole other podcast, and maybe maybe we get you back on. I actually have um, 
I'll DM you uh, some some video game stuff that I'm that I'm looking at that you might be interested in. All, yeah, all along the spectrum, like from venture type bets to some publishers that you may be interested in. Um, but we are at the end of our uh, time here. It's I I gotta eat dinner at some point. <laughs> it's almost Do nine it, o'clock. Do so, it. Uh, so no, this is great. Yeah, this was this was this was super fun. So I'm gonna ask you a couple more you know questions. Uh, where can people go to find out more about you? I know you're on Twitter. Um, people need to follow you more. I'm trying to get you to ten thousand. You need to get to ten thousand. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, man. Um, yeah, Twitter is it. Um. You know, one of these days I may, I may dox myself and, and become public. Um, but, uh, but you know, we'll, we'll see, but Twitter is probably the best place to, to get in touch with me right now. Um, my DMs are open. I love talking to people. If anyone listened to anything I said on this podcast and has a massive disagreement with it, uh, hit me up. I'd love to talk about it. I'm wanting to stay intellectually curious. So yeah, I think it's what at preferred shares at pref shares, uh, Bonsi Chillips, um, is, is, as a tag. So yeah, man, uh, man, I really appreciate you having me on and, and thanks for, uh, thanks for being generous with your time today. Yeah. I mean, shoot, thank you for being generous. Um, now I've got one more question. If you could, and I ask this to everybody, if you could have dinner with anybody from the past or the present, who would it be and why? Oh, you're like, I can't do Buffett. Damn it. I gotta do something. That's hard. Nah, I, I wouldn't do Buffett. Uh, the quick on why I wouldn't do Buffett. He's an incredible investor. People pay too much attention to him for life advice. Um, if you look hot take, if you look at Buffett's life outside I think of he's terrible for life advice, it actually has not been a great life. It's not a life I want to live. I, I wouldn't want his life. Um, he's had an unsuccessful marriage. Uh, doesn't seem like he talks to his kids a ton. I apologize if any of his kids listen to this and they want to correct me. Um, but I, I'm, I'm not sure I'd want his personal life. Um, I hope that I leave a better legacy in my personal life than Buffett has left. I'll say that. Um, two. So, all right, back to who, who would I have dinner with? Um, I would love to, so Blaise Pascal, um, is a personal, personal hero of mine. So, um, Pascal is one of the fathers of probability theory, um, a bunch of different areas uh, that he, um, you know, uh, mathematics um, that, that he was very influential in helping to develop. Um, he lived somewhat of a short life uh, and basically the second half of his life, he ended up getting into, um, uh, he, he became a Christian and started writing apologetics um, and basically like Christian theology. Um, but he, uh, I just find him as a very interesting individual. He lived, he lived, uh, very, very passionate about his mathematics views and then very passionate about his religious views. And I just, I just have always found him as this very interesting character. Um, and, uh, I think he was brilliant. And so, yeah, if I, if I had an opportunity, um, to sit down with, with Pascal, that would, that would be like my ideal dinner. Awesome. I do not think we've had Blaise Pascal mentioned and we're almost at a hundred episodes, by the way. So uh, I don't think we've had him mentioned at all. What, so, what's been uh, the most popular real quick. I'll ask you who's been the most popular people responded. If you tell me Buffett, dude, <laughs> it's actually, uh, you know, funny you mentioned uh, it's probably, it's no, it's probably, well, it's probably like 
Jesus and Buffett, which is like something that you'd see at like a value investing, like country concert, Mm -hmm. like tailgate or something. Like two yeah. worlds collide, just, like country yeah. music throwing down, but you also have a bunch of value investors. It'd be like Jesus and Buffett, hell yeah, Jesus brother. That's that's great. <laughs> I mean, look, both of those would be up there for me. Um, yeah. I was trying to think outside of just like the yeah. the regulars, but uh, yeah, you know, Ben Franklin would be one that's way up there yep. as well. Just another Renaissance man. Yeah. He's he's fascinating. So yeah, um, but yeah, well, cool, awesome. All right. Well, Bonsi, thanks so much, man. Uh, guys, make sure you follow him at Bonsi Chillips or no at Pref Shares, but his name is Bonsi Chillips. Got to make sure we get that right. Um, thanks yeah. so much again for coming on the show. I learned a ton and I know uh, everybody listening will as well. Cool, man. Yeah, appreciate it. And thank, thanks for having me on. Um, and uh, go get yourself some dinner. <laughs>